0: Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges, and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks.
1: Ed here with another episode of Digital Voices. Really excited to have another physician leader as our guest. Dr. Dave Levin is joining us. So, uh,
0: welcome, Dave. Thanks, Ed. It's really good to be here. Nice to connect again.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And I can't wait for you to be able to share with our audience you know, a lot of the perspectives from a, a leadership point of view on, on digital and what we can look forward to. And Megan, as we jump in, how many physician executives have you worked with? I know you're early and you're here at Divergent, but have you run into many uh, f- physicians who've been both a clinician as well as an executive?
0: Not really, no. Although since working with you on this podcast, I feel like I've had the honor of sitting in on some really great conversations, but but not really directly, no, not so far.
1: Yeah, it's a great combination when you have a clinician who understands digital and applies that and takes a leadership role. And so we have so much to learn from individuals like them. And so Dave and I first connected when I first showed up at the Cleveland Clinic. So Dave, I don't remember the precise circumstance, but I know you were in town and you were like, hey, Ed, I'd, I'm happy to share with you my perspectives at the Cleveland Clinic because you, I believe, were the first. Were you the first CMIO?
0: Yeah, I, I was their first CMIO. That's correct.
1: Yeah, so you pioneered this whole sort of, you one of the pioneers for the whole CMIO track and, and one of the leaders. And, and you were so gracious with your time with me, kind of filling me in on the on the background since I was new to the organization and getting some of your insights. So I always... Appreciated that time that we had together. And I still remember the restaurant. I still remember sitting outdoors with you and, and we just had a great time.
0: It's true. You know, Ed, I have a completely different perspective on that meeting. So from my perspective, you are one of the gods of healthcare informatics and, you know, a larger than life figure. And so for me, it was like, Hey, I've got an excuse to go grab some of Ed's time. So it was I'm glad you feel like it was useful. For me, it was a wonderful opportunity to establish a more personal relationship with you. And, yeah. and like like you, I remember the evening very, very clearly.
1: Yeah, well thank you very much. as you know, it's all about the team that you surround yourself with and the organizations that you align yourselves to that make for such great experiences. And yeah, I really enjoyed my time. I, I felt the same way and still do about you and, and what you bring as a leader, as an innovator, and, and just plain as a friend of mine. And so, we'll be talking a lot today, but the first thing everyone wants to know, Dave, is what's on your playlist?
0: What's on my playlist? Yeah, you know, I'm a big fish head. I love improvisation, so I like jazz and I like jam bands, and so my playlist right now is, uh, Fish is on the summer tour. So between Fish and the Trey Anastasia band and Trey playing solo, and he sat in with Billy Strings recently and set off quite a sensation. So pretty much it's live fish all the time on my playlist. very nice the other question people always want to know is what
1: is your life message or mantra or you know passion you know what really drives Dr. Dave
0: Levin? Yeah, it's really two things, if I could. So the first is, I've really come to believe, Ed, that it is true, if you want to change the world, go form a small group and go change the world. I think that's how real innovation and real transformation starts. And so I'm always looking for those kinds of groups or if I personally want to stir up good trouble, that's usually the very first thing I will do. I'm grateful that we have large organizations and large groups, but I really think most of the, the truly cool, rapid innovation starts within a much smaller circle. And then my other mantra is balance. And I got that from my dad very early on. And, you know, that applies to just so many different aspects of life. And I've actually become even more formal about that. You know, culture is of great interest to me. And there's this whole concept of polarity thinking. And it's basically this idea that most things are not yes or no, they're not binary, they exist in tension. So for example, is Ed, is it better to breathe in or breathe out? The question really doesn't make sense. And and I think I spend a lot of my day trying to look at problems from that polarity perspective, that balance, because I think it's, we tend to, Get in one camp or the other and we forget. Actually, what we're after here is to get the best of both and minimize the downsides of each. So a favorite here right now is do you work remotely or do we make everyone come into the office? I think the answer is yes.
1: Yeah, no, I love that thinking because you're right. That really stifles innovation as well. You know, that's what we'd we'll be talking about is healthcare yeah. technology, digital innovation. And if you force yourself into sort of that binary thinking, which we're sort of raised to be, right, it starts in school very early, it really limits your opportunities, for sure.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. I think it generates conflict that's not productive. Right. And instead, when we can get people into think into a polarity mindset, it actually can shift that conflict to be very, very productive.
1: So tell us a little bit about your story, Dave. How did you You know, you can go as deep as you want on the personal, professional side, but you know, how did you become who you are today?
0: And I usually describe myself as the Forrest Gump of healthcare. I really feel like most of my career, I just wandered into the frame, and there were cool, smart people doing really neat things, and they let me hang out. And you know, as you said earlier, so much of this is about team, and I, I think I was just very fortunate to connect with a variety of teams over time. I do think there's a lot of truth in that Warren Buffett statement about, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Yes. The other thing you touched on earlier was about the kind of boundary crossing of being a a clinician and knowing something about IT. I think that's a really powerful idea for any boundary crosser. And so a lot of my career, frankly, has been... Being knowledgeable about multiple areas that aren't, don't normally come together in the mix. And it's allowed me to think about problems from a different perspective or to bring really basic concepts from one field that would look really advanced in another field. And I'm sure you've seen that as well. You're marinated in informatics and then you come into healthcare and all of a sudden you just see dozens and dozens of opportunities that your colleagues on the operational clinical side might not see simply because they don't have that IT experience. Take all of that and the only way to make any sense out of my career, my dad used to say, it's a really erratic career. And I say, no, dad, it's it's eclectic. But (laughs) the theme has really been looking for a bigger and bigger lever to affect change at scale. So I started as a clinician seeing patients one by one, I gradually got more involved in managing the operations of a practice and then multiple practices. And then when the big push came to uh, deploy EHRs and begin to really digitalize healthcare, I was standing in the right spot at, at the right time. The opportunity at Cleveland Clinic. And then that's led to some other entrepreneurial opportunities. But that theme has been there, which is, you know, cross fertilize different fields. And look for ways to have greater and greater impact at scale.
1: I love that. And Dave, were you like in high school one day and you woke up and was like, "I'm going to be a physician"? Or
0: <laughs> it's a crazy story. You know, I'm of that generation of the dawn of the personal computer. So I read those same articles in Popular Mechanics that Bill Gates read and, and others. Obviously, Bill's had a much more successful career than I did. But it really fired my imagination. I had an older brother who was training to be a pediatrician. And so as crazy as it sounds, really from the, about the age of 14 or 15, which would have been you know in the mid-70s, I saw this potential for information technology and in healthcare. Now, I couldn't be specific about it. It was more of an instinctual thing. And I had a first career in IT and then I went to medical school. And the intent was to combine the two. What I realized as I was finishing my clinical training was, you know, healthcare is not really ready for this and the technology is not really mature enough either. So I ended up doing a bunch of other things and doing some small informatics work until... The big revolution started in in the late 2000s.
1: Yeah, that, that's pretty cool, and and yeah, the background makes sense. And you know, I'm just thinking out loud here. You know, the commonalities that I hear between you and a lot of the other fantastic leaders that I've spoken to is around the concept of humility. You didn't use those words, but your description, Dave, as you talk about your early career or how, you know how you came to be who you are, you know, there's a lot of humility. Uh, wrapped in there, and if I, you know, just think about one of the keys to super successful leaders, and not not all leaders are humble, but at least the, the majority or all of our guests have been. And I just find it super interesting, you know, as people tell their story.
0: I have a mentor here at Flood, Mr. Bob Mooney, and one of the things that Bob talks about is striving to be humbly confident yeah and i just think that's such a beautiful way to think about it so we do need to be humble for lots of reasons not the least of which is we're wrong a good part of the time and we can't do it by ourselves but we also have to have some confidence or no one's going to follow us or we won't have faith in ourselves so it's it's a very interesting kind of balance there
1: right yeah i was gonna say it goes to the boundary crossing as you mentioned early is is being in, uh, going in it's not either or it, it's both so yeah I love that so you, we were just talking now about your story and sort of how you got there and you, uh, become an early pioneer and you just jumped right in because you had this sort of this tech bent to you already and you know, when you look back historically, and I won't limit you to a time frame, but what are some of the major shifts that you've seen in the last few years? We'll talk about the future in a minute, but, yeah. you know, sometimes it's good to look back and see, okay, we've made some major shifts here.
0: I think the, the reality is when you and I started our careers, healthcare was done on paper. I mean, right. there were pockets that were digitalized. And I would argue most of what we've accomplished in the last decade plus was the basic digitalization of healthcare. We got folks to put down their pens and start using a keyboard. I know that can sound like really simple or, or an understatement, but as you and I and the folks that did that work know, that was a huge accomplishment. It was the laying of the foundation on which we're going to build everything else. What I see happening now is the sort of next logical steps to follow that. And to me, it's about things like better interoperability. We have tended to focus on the technology part of what I call the iron triangle of people, process, and technology. I think there's huge opportunity to go back and focus on the process part. So how many of us really did careful process redesign as we were doing that initial digitalization? Some did, some didn't. Some did it to a great degree, some to a lesser degree. That's a. It may sound boring or not fun or whatever, but I'm telling you, there's huge low-hanging fruit there. And then I think the other is the people part. And some of that is technical. It, it's about human factors and reliability, But I'm going to make a kind of radical statement here. I've come to believe that the biggest barriers to advancing technology in healthcare are cultural. They're not technical. It's not to say there aren't technical issues, but those are things we can manage through and chip away at over time. I really believe the the biggest opportunity in healthcare IT and, candidly, in healthcare in general is cultural, And so I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a minute. You may need to knock me off, but I've become kind of an extremist about this. I actually think culture is the work and everything else is a byproduct of that. Now, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but to my mind, it's not not a huge overstatement that if you get culture right and as leaders, if we focus on that, our teams will get the tactical stuff done. They'll figure it out themselves organically.
1: I don't think it's that's overly uh, radical. I think the world. I think that healthcare specifically is coming to that realization that you know not to overuse uh, what it, you know uh, trite statements, but you know culture each strategy for lunch and that, and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's true. It but, is and true, <laughs> and we know we've lived it. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of the success of and failures of programs have really come down, not to the tech, but to the culture, absolutely. And and I, and I agree with you, too, on, on sort of the things you were saying about process. We didn't spend enough time on process. And where we did, we got fixated with, you know, I'm going to come out with my own radical statement here and say Six Sigma is dead. It's really about human-centered design. It's more about looking at the entire workflow, work streams, instead of little pieces of it. Because what we did, we did really good process improvement techniques in certain areas or Six Sigma, but then we never thought about it from a longitudinal point of view. And and I think, yeah, so people are going back now, right? And they're redesigning and and then addressing culture and things like that. So, I agree with you. You know, yeah, I think people might have expected, oh, we're going to have a hospital at home, and we're going to be able to do, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals within right. uh, control substances within your house, which is true. And I know we both would advocate that. But the real issues, again, like we're talking about, it, it comes down to culture.
0: It does, and I, I, the there's still. Like you, I love the cutting edge and I'm fascinated by what things might look like in twenty years, but I also believe there's some really basic blocking and tackling that we that we still need to do and and there's tremendous value to our organizations in in pursuing those things
1: Dave, if you were and we're going to talk about what you're doing today yeah. in a couple of minutes I, I really want to know more about it, and I know our audience does as well all about flow, but before we get there. Knowing that everything you know today and and including you know what we just talked about culture, if you were to go back to a hospital now, you you get hired as a CEO and you go back, what should hospitals do now in terms of digital transformation? What what should they you know because a lot of them are sort of late to the game, right? Some have just finished implementing EHR. Yeah. And even the advanced ones, ten years ago, they didn't have an EHR either. So It's all pretty new, but what should hospitals do now in order to succeed in the future?
0: I'm going to make a generic statement, and then I'm going to talk about analytics a little bit. So the generic statement is, these things should be led by operations. It really should be the operational leaders deciding, this is our strategy, and this is the kind of technical enablement that we are going to need to execute that strategy. And then I think the role of our IT colleagues and others is to, first of all, translate that into language that our more technical colleagues can understand and also to partner with our operational colleagues because, you know, it's, it's a, there's a give and take there. Right. And often a, a lot of my experiences, my operational colleagues will show up and they'll tell me the solution, which is not really what I want. You know, they'll say, I need application X, and and I say, Okay, well tell me more about it. Because what I really want to understand is what's the problem you're trying to solve or the capability you're trying to create. And then I I will help you figure out, does technology even play a role here? And oh, by the way, we gotta talk about process and people, and of course they don't like it when I do that, because we'd like to just throw technology at the problem and solve it. But my experience is that doesn't. Usually work very often. Right. And then, so then to be really, really concrete, I I think the other area is what I call actionable insights. It's, it's analytics that, that can lead to action. And I think this is another area where we had, you know, big promise. We really thought we were going to hit it out of the park, and you know, we we do the basic digitalization. All this data would be exhaust out the back end, and then we would have this mind blowing analytics that would tell us what to do. And I just I haven't seen that in nature yet. Uh, maybe you have, or maybe there's pockets of it and i think you and i also lived through that age of the giant data warehouse so you know we'll capture everything we'll be able to answer any question you ever want to answer and it just never seems to actually come to fruition and so what i've learned from that is it's about reverse engineering <laughs> so my advice to my my ceo colleague would be two things the first is your data management probably sucks. So you you probably should start to dig into that because if you think you have the fuel to put in your fancy analytics engine, you're probably wrong. Most places have a lot of work to do there. And then the second thing is, just like I said earlier, this should be operationally led. Analytics should be operationally led as well. I'm going through this exercise right now with my colleagues, and I'm basically making... The head of finance and the head of our manufacturing and the head of our commercial operations define very clearly what are the important strategic questions that you are going to need to answer in the next year or two. Because from that, I can reverse engineer the data that's required and the analytics to process that data to provide a meaningful answer. So check back with me in a year on how well that's working. I think that's a, a kind of wisdom that's emerged over the last couple of years about how to focus those efforts and and ensure that there's an actual measurable ROI in, in your lifetime. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. I'm recording today from Denver, Colorado, and was listening to sports radio Last evening, and there's a new quarterback for the Broncos, and so they're already predicting you know, Broncos are going to go to uh, the Super Bowl. But <laughs> they had this debate about data and analytics that was really interesting. And one of the analysts actually got it, and he understood the difference between tons of data right, they got all the data, they don't use it, it's not actionable during the game, yeah, and then actually taking it sort of that money ball baseball but taking it during game time and using the, the analytics you know to help drive decisions so it's kind of they're having the same sort of discussion is very fascinating and it goes back to culture so you mentioned culture on the top and so I've been in fantastic organizations as you have that have all the data resources you could possibly want but they didn't get the outcomes they expected because of cultural reasons you know infighting you know people being very protective right. of you know, and so in the end, it, it still comes down, even once you, you know, reverse engineer and all those sorts of things, it comes down to culture.
0: I think that's right. I mean, my, my part of my hope is that by taking this approach, we're setting ourselves up for a more cultural success. Yeah. because I'm, in effect, I'm putting my colleagues on the hook as well. And I'm, I'm helping them to find, I mean, so eventually this is going to lead to targets and objectives and goals yeah. and measurement of all those things as well. And so it's not just doing the work, but the way you do the work is just so important. Yeah.
1: Let me shift gears on you a little bit, because I know some of our audience, Dave, are, are clinicians who are dabbling a little bit in digital yeah. and want to get more involved. You obviously are one of the pioneers of that whole move and shift. Yeah. What, your advice be for, for physicians who are practicing a lot today, but thinking, hmm, I like to maybe
0: part time or full time uh, move into sort of informatics. I have a couple pieces of advice there. The, the first is volunteer. There are just raise your hand and let people know that you're willing to give some time and come in with an open heart and an open mind. Don't come in with your own agenda. Don't come in trying to drive your own project. Find out what's already going on. And how can you join the team and be a contributor? That's the way to get in the door and begin to learn and begin to build the relationships that, that can lead to other greater opportunities. And I'm sure at any organization, there are many opportunities. And if you're willing to show up and be humbly confident that you will be most welcome. And, you know, so you got to do a little bit of pro bono work, if you will, before the, the other rewards come. I think the other thing that's really interesting, and, and, I, and Ed, I, you're closer to this day-to-day than I am these days, so maybe this has changed, but I was struck a few years ago that you have to decide, do I want to be Scotty down in the engine room, or do I want to be Captain Kirk up on the bridge? Because I think those are completely different skill sets, and I think folks tend to have a natural inclination towards one or the other. So if you really like coding and you like to be down in the details of the work and, you know, you want to write the next great epic report, fantastic. You are Scotty. We need to find a role for you down in the engine room. And, oh, by the way... There's some rules of the road about how we operate down in the engine room. So you do need to come in and learn some of those as, as well. But we welcome you for your talent, your subject matter expertise, your enthusiasm and all of that. To me, that's very different from Captain Kirk up on the bridge and Captain Kirk up on the bridge. You know, he needs to know enough about the technology that he can call BS on his colleagues or at least smell it. But. That job is not one to master the technical details. That's a job about strategy and vision casting and resource allocation and kind of empowering others to achieve the, the vision. Completely different skill set, I think. And again, my, my life experience is people tend to have natural aptitude in, in one or the other. It's, it's the rare unicorn that ha- has both. But like I said, I, you know, I'm not close to this on a day to day basis. So maybe the, Maybe the environment has so the zeitgeist has shifted a little bit. Am I
1: making sense to you? Does this still resonate with you? Yeah, yeah. It makes total sense. And I think the volunteering is, is great. I can't think of a fellow chief digital officer or CIO who would turn down a doc who said, Hey, I'm really interested and you know, let me spend some time with you. I, I've done that with so many docs, and many of them went on to you know become CMIOs or CIOs, and and others have decided you know it's fun to dabble, but I'd rather you know practice and or, or practice the majority, and and that's fine too. But yeah, I think volunteering then you then, then you get a better understanding of what you're getting yourself into, and then you may find out, oh my gosh, I love this, I want to do this full time or at least you know majority of time, and and that could lead to. Uh, To other things, so yeah, I think that's that's really great advice. Now, in our last few minutes, I really want to be uh, future focused and and also talk about flow. So I know you're on several boards, so your perspective is really good. Yeah, you did the CMIO thing and did it really well, and then now you've uh, you know been part of companies, creating companies, on boards, and with Flow. So so tell us a little bit about Flow and, and what you're doing to help organizations enable digital transformation.
0: Well, this is another chapter in Dave Levin, Forrest Gump. I was starting to network to look for a new opportunity and uh, called a friend of mine based here in Richmond, Virginia, who had been a successful entrepreneur, Dr. Eric Edwards, and I was really just looking for introductions and advice. And in the middle of the call, Eric asked me if I'd be interested in coming to work for him at Flow. And, oh, by the way, folks, it's, you know, if you want money, ask for advice. And if you want advice, ask for money. And it was a you know, really classic kind of experience like okay. that. I think that was in September. And by November, I was working for them, just completely taken with the mission. And, and honestly, if you told me two years ago, I'd be working In the pharma segment of industry i would have suggested you needed to have your medications adjusted i mean it's just not an area i knew much about or you know had much calling to but our mission is really unique so so we are a public benefits corporation and we are focused on solving the chronic shortage of essential medicines in the united states and those of us that have been practicing healthcare know this has been an ongoing issue for decades It got dramatically worse during the pandemic, or or maybe the stress fractures were revealed during the pandemic. These are not, you know, fancy, cutting edge, super expensive medications. These tend to be the basic things we need every day to run a hospital or clinical practice and care for patients. Many of them are sterile injectables. They're generics. They've been off patent for decades. And. But we're, <laughs> frankly, we're trying to disrupt the entire pharma industry because we think at every node of the supply chain is broken. Where we're starting though is in the middle, in the reengineering these basic molecules and the manufacturing process. And our intent is to totally onshore these things. These will be made in the United States, and in, in highly advanced automated manufacturing, we're building some of the leading-edge plant, plants in the world about 20 minutes south of here in Petersburg, Virginia. And we've got these world-class chemists that are basically taking these molecules that are 30 and 50 years old and rethinking the chemistry all the way back to the starting materials. And the net result is a process that is better, cheaper, faster, greener, like 90% reduction in waste, that kind of thing. And we, our economic analysis tells us with the right kinds of customer arrangements, we can make these things in a sustainable way. And then the other part of this that I'm really proud of, well, the many parts, but but two I'd emphasize. So one is... This has huge national security implications. yeah that's what I was thinking. whether it's medical countermeasures or you know preparedness for the next pandemic and so we've been really fortunate to have a strong relationship with the US government and one of the things that we are building on their behalf is the first strategic API reserve. So think of this as the equivalent of the strategic petroleum reserve, but instead we're storing the active pharmaceutical ingredients they can be rapidly converted to finished drugs. And the shelf life for those is much, much longer. So it's that, that combination of preparedness, of really focusing on how we can onshore these things and develop a, a stable supply chain. And then the other piece of it that I'm, that I'm real excited about and I'm personally deeply involved in is we have formed a children's hospital coalition. Most folks may not be aware, but we really don't make drugs for pediatrics in the United States. We make drugs for adults. And then our pediatric colleagues have to figure out how to manipulate those to take care of kids. And the quality, safety, cost, efficiency, satisfaction, I mean, you know, sort of obvious, all the deficits that come with that. So we have formed a coalition with uh, now more than 20 of the leading children's hospitals around the country and they're doing a couple things with us. First of all, they're helping us design the drug portfolio, so we we're gonna make the drugs they want in the way they want them. And the second thing is we're entering into long term contracts because an aggregating volume. Because part of what we've got to solve is the economics of this. Right. And so if I can make what they really want, and they will commit to you know fixed purchases over ex- extended period of time, we can actually make the economics of this work and resolve a lot of the the drivers of the chronic shortages there 's many other aspects to this clearly there 's a data and analytics play here, and, and I could talk about that if you want me to go on for a few more minutes uh, or I could come back but it 's been truly exciting work and you know back to one of our earlier themes i didn 't know anything about pharmaceutical manufacturing what my boss said to me is, I'm hiring you because you don't. Because I want someone in the mix that will ask the stupid questions and will ask why five times. That won't be afraid to go do crazy stuff because they don't know how crazy it is. And I'd like to think that I've actually bought some of that to the mix here as well. That's
1: awesome because we don't talk too often digital voices, although I've wanted to a little bit more talking about transformation, not just on the provider side. And we talk a lot about it on the payer side. We've had a few guests on the pharma side, but the, what you're talking about is truly a uh, transformation of what flow is doing with the two very major examples that you shared. And, and I actually didn't know some of that information that you shared, uh, uh, you know, about the meds, about the repository, about children's, uh, the, the medications for children yeah. sp- specific. And that's awesome. Yeah. And I could see all of the analytics that would be required and the other thing is is I loved, you know, if I just were to summarize, Dave, our discussion, but I'm going to let you have the last word. Is You know, we talked about a couple of really key things. One was boundary crossing. And I, I'm just kind of doubling down on a couple of things because uh, I thought they were really important. Uh, the boundary crossing and, and things don't have to be binary. And, and with boundary crossing also, like the example of you coming in. So you are a longtime provider side leader and you come in. On the pharma side, and that's what they wanted and needed. And it's so healthy to have that diversity of thought and experience. And then the whole uh, humbly confident, the whole thing on culture, you know, we've talked about that before generally in the past, but it's really come to a head here. I think uh, as of late, it will continue as we do more and more digital transformation. We talked about docs who want to come into tech and, and some good, great ways of doing that. And then sort of digital transformation in the future, specifically pharma. So this has been. Such a rich experience, and I'm so happy to get reconnected with you. But before we leave, I'm going to let you have the last word. Anything else that we may have missed or one of these topics that you you want to go just a little deeper
0: on? So I'm going to get really macro and philosophical on you here. All right, let's do it. It's no secret. We live in some challenging times, the, the macro environment. There's the political environment, the economic environment. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of things to be concerned about for sure. But I urge my colleagues in healthcare to practice gratitude and grace we have some of the best jobs in the world that doesn't mean they're easy but they're meaningful we are well compensated for what we do we get to work with generally terrific colleagues and we're healing our communities. This is God's work here. Yeah. It's easy to to lose that theme and lose the joy cuz the work is hard and I got 10 more patients to see and all those things. Those are real. I don't I don't mean to to dismiss those, but I think there is this perspective of gratitude. And then I think the other is grace is and I, I urge that on all of us <laughs> in all settings right now. We need to try harder to extend grace to our colleagues and to our fellow citizens we need to understand that most of us are really trying to do what we think is best and what's right and we all we all have challenges and and you can only see the tip of the iceberg of my challenges and and I can only see the tip of the iceberg of yours i try to enter every new relationship with the assumption that that this is going to be a positive and it's going to be fair and that i should approach with an open heart and with joy and occasionally i'm disappointed by that but far more often, it's been a great reward. So I uh, hope I don't sound Pollyanna here. Cause I'm not, again, I don't want to downplay the challenges, they are real, but there's so much gratitude to be found and there's so much goodness in, in extending grace.
1: I love it, Dave, what a gr- great way to end this episode. And speaking of gratitude, thank you for being my guest, being my friend. Thank you to our producer extraordinaire, Megan, for the great work she does behind the scenes to make this happen. And yeah, those are great words. There's really nothing more that I can add to it. So thank you so much. And we need to make sure it's not another five years or so
0: before we talk again. Oh, I agree, Ed. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
1: All right. That wraps up Digital Voices. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you
0: for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly,